AC and ever since practically nobody took me up on the free editing in exchange for a written review, that deal is officially closed. I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Also, here's a shout out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. Uh, dry January is coming up, and might be a nice option for you if that's your jam. If you visit athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a little discount. I don't get any money, merely celebrating a nice product. Skip the hangover, man. Skip it. Oh, yeah. I had, like, some very, like, like gonna eat a pint of ice cream, like, to lay on the floor kind of days. All right, so it's that Atavistian time of the month. So, you know... It's up to you whether you want to know some of the story behind the story before you read the story or read the story before you hear about the story behind the story. Visit magazine.atavis.com and consider subscribing. I don't get any kickbacks, so you don't have to feel like I'm promoting something merely to make a buck. I don't make shit, man. We have Ray Knudsen on the show today, this final podcast of 2023, the fourth year of 2020. I've given up all hope that things get better. Ray is a journalist and author of All Made Up, The Power and Pitfalls of Beauty Culture. She's written for The Cut, Paste Magazine, Esquire, and now The Atavist Magazine. That's uh, that's, that's a nice career so far. She writes a lot about women's health, and that's the ecosystem of this piece for The Atavist, about an OBGYN who took advantage of countless women and performed many procedures on their bodies without consent. It raises questions about who women can trust when they're at their most vulnerable, but also who's culpable and who should pay for the crimes of the doctor. Be sure you're heading to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign up for my monthly Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. There's been an upsetting amount of unsubscribes and lack of growth. It sucks when you've been doing something for more than 10 years, but then it gets lumped into the current glut of newsletters and thus gets dismissed. I guess that's just the market telling me it sucks. Same for the podcast itself. That will soon turn 11. But all you can do is trust you're making something of value and that it will find the people it means to serve when they're ready for it. First... We are hearing from Sayward Darby Mann, who is back from sabbatical. And this piece and her goals for the forthcoming hellscape of a year, you know, she's going to talk a little bit about that. Didn't we just have an election year? Fuck. Okay, so let's just get into it. I'm not here to waste your time. Let's say hi to Sayward, and then we'll meet Ray, okay? Ray. Uh, on the precipice and doorstep of, of a new year, oh, you know wh- how, what are your goals uh, for for the Atavis going forward into 2024, and then also just you as an editor and a journalist yourself? Yeah, uh, you know, going into 2024 with the Atavist, the goals are are modest insofar as I love what we're doing and uh, we're doing it well, and I want to keep publishing great stories that you know, showcase 
great reporting, great writing, just great storytelling. And we already have quite a few stories actually assigned and we have a ton of copy in hand right now, uh, which just, I think I over, um, I set too many deadlines like during my sabbatical basically um, <laughs> because I came back and had a, had a bunch of stories in hand, which is awesome because that means we have, you know, lots to work on, lots to choose from. But it's fun to, you know, already kind of see the the shape of the year um, and the diversity of stories and whatnot. So, um, so yeah, I don't know that I have anything particularly, you know, unique or any anything exciting in mind. We just kind of want to keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, the last month especially has been a, as it is often this time of year, um, really, really terrible on the media front. Lots of layoffs, closures. Um, I mean, some great news like Jezebel coming back, for instance. But, you know, it's it's a tough time as it has been for so long in media. I think that The Atavist is you know, kind of on its little island doing its thing. And and I think that that stability really means something. It certainly means something to me. I think it means something to our contributors um, and our readers. And so, you know, I really want to make sure that we maintain quality, consistency, and, and stability, uh, just because, uh, I don't know, it's such a, a tough time um, and full of, you know, unwelcome surprises. Um, and if I can keep those minimized, that means I'm doing my job. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. And then, uh, uh, oh, we do have our 150th issue coming up. So once upon nice. a time, we had a big plan for our hundredth issue to do a live event in New York. We were going to have, uh, various people essentially not read their out of us stories, but like tell their out of us stories. Um, we were doing it in conjunction with a storytelling show here in the city called the um, the tell, uh, Leslie Jameson was going to be there. Barrett Swanson was going to be there. Um, and it was scheduled for March of 2020. So needless to say that did not happen. That was a bummer. <laughs> um, so we had our hundredth issue and then also our 10th anniversary, um, all within the pandemic. Um, and so I would love to do something around our 150th issue, um, just to, you know, celebrate having, you know, had such a good run and, and the fact that we're still running. So we don't know exactly what we're going to do yet. That's, uh, let's see, five, four or five issues away. So a couple months, but hopefully, hopefully we'll do something fun. And how about you on a, on a, on a writer front, journalist front? Yeah, I, uh, didn't, you know, really write much in 2023 just because, uh, I was really focused on getting the magazine set up for my sabbatical and then being on my sabbatical, um, so yeah, I would love to find something in, in 2024 that I can really sink my teeth into from a reporting and writing standpoint. Um, but I don't have anything in particular in mind right now. I don't know. Some of the some of my favorite projects have felt very random. I guess you know something has just come across my desk or come to my attention or somebody mentioned something offhand to me. And for me, you know, I need to feel really, really passionate and curious about something to uh, add it to my full-time plate. <laughs> so hopefully something along those lines will, will come along either via an assignment that somebody wants me to do or something I randomly hear and decide that that sounds like something I want to dig into. Uh, this is a time of year where maybe people are looking to, uh, you know, improve something or maybe level up their, you know, ambitions or goals. And, you know, you can often speak to the fundamentals of good pitching and good pitching tends to lead to more stories landed. So if there were, you know, something you could point to that, uh, you know, if people are looking to write 
you know, better pitches, you know, for you or for anybody else out there, you know, what might be some, a couple, two or three things that you, that you might focus on? Like these are, these are the things that at least get us having a dialogue about potentially assigning a story. You know, the Atavis is its own weird little thing. And so, you know, pitching for us doesn't necessarily, or the, th- the things that work in pitching for us don't necessarily work um, in pitching for other places. But I think, you know, oftentimes people send us really great ideas, but they don't um, highlight who the sort of animating character or characters are going to be. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's an event or, um, you know, this thing that happened or it's a mystery or whatever. And I can see that, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. That's a good story. But, uh, you know, who who are the people going to be? Who, who are going to be the standout um, characters in the narrative? And so making sure that pitches really showcase who those who those figures are going to be uh is really really important and that kind of that suggestion goes hand in hand with you know oftentimes people will read about an event of some kind you know i don't know a murder or uh, again a mystery or uh you know just something that grabs their interest and they'll they'll put together a pitch but they will not have necessarily you know done that initial bit of groundwork to identify who your main sources are going to be, um, you know, how you're going to animate the piece. And so, you know, oftentimes we'll say, well, that sure, that that can make for a really good story. But, you know, who have you talked to? Who are you going to talk to? Who's agreed to talk to you? And people, you know, we're, we're more likely to assign a story when people have ready and, you know, exciting answers to those questions, <laughs> um, as opposed to just, you know, a great, yeah, you, you, you read about an interesting thing and, you know, put together a good, a good uh you know a couple paragraphs about why it would make for a good story but there's that essential element of why why should why should we assign it to you like how do we know that you're going to be able to get the story because there's nothing worse than somebody I mean there are plenty of things that are worse <laughs> but there, um it's always frustrating when you know somebody sort of promises to deliver this really great story and then can't because uh, you know, ultimately they just can't get people to talk to them or can't get the access that they had hoped for. It's always so disappointing. Um, and so if we can sort of do everything we can to ensure that that's not going to come to pass um, in the in the pitching and kind of, you know, brainstorming of how a story might work process, you know, the better for us, better for the writer, better for the story. Very nice. And I think, uh, you know, that leads into to Ray's piece here and, and to the points that you had just laid out for, you know, pitches that tend to you know, work for you or, or pitches that don't, you know, what was it about Ray's story when it came across your desk that, that struck you like, okay, this one has the goods. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm always interested in stories that, you know, it, it, it's a legal story. It's a, you know, something of a redemption story. Uh, it's also a health story and we're always interested in, you know, pitches having to do with, we sort of have some, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of like, you know, fringe topic, not fringe, like in terms of mainstream, but, you know, things that we just don't write about that often, like that we don't get that many pitches about. And so getting this pitch about, you know, a doctor who had done wrong to a tremendous number of patients and the sort of, uh, you know, medical landscape was something that definitely grabbed me initially. Um, I will say that things like sports fit into this category as well. Of just we don't get as many pitches, or at least pitches that would work for us. Um, and so, yeah, health, 
sports, science, you know, that those, those kinds of things. As some of you longtime listeners know, at times I will just interject to provide, I don't know, uh, context or explanation, clarity, I don't know. Uh, but in this case, you know, say we're saying that they don't get a whole lot of sports pitches, and I'm primarily a sports writer, uh, it should be noted, and I think I noted this uh, a couple months ago, but let's just re-up it. Uh, Jonna Meisenholder and Cassidy Randall, their pieces that ran in the Atavist in the same year were both anthologizing year's best sports writing, the the latest edition, like in the main volume, not even notable selection, like two Atavist sports stories made that volume. And that's like where I would love to be someday. And here it is. Here, here is what, you know, say we're, say we're in company we're able to do. Okay. This is something of a long interjection, but I just wanted to bring that up. Maybe there's sports writers out there consider pitching cause they don't really run that many sports, but when they do, holy shit, you might just get into year's best sports writing. Just saying. So yeah, that, that was definitely uh, one thing that immediately grabbed me. Um, but then I think too, there was just this, element of this constellation of, you know, subjects who had been victimized by this doctor and who's, you know, were um, either willing to share their stories with Ray or had shared their stories in court testimony. And this feeling of kind of, uh, again, redemption almost of, you know, saying, you know, you did this terrible thing to me and I'm going to sort of like redeem myself and make myself feel whole by telling my story. And I thought that that was very, very moving. Um, there is a bit of a twist on that at the end of the story that I don't want to, you know, necessarily not twist per se, but um, just an unfortunate fact of, of the legal system that means um, that sort of effort to make themselves heard and whole uh, does not go as far as they would like it to. And as far as I'm concerned, as, as far as they um, deserve for it to. But it just, it, it really felt like a story of people whose agency had been stripped from them um, and whose vulnerabilities had been exploited, who then were able in this story to kind of push back against the person who had done, and the system that had done that to them. So, um, so those were, you know, the elements that really uh, grabbed me from a storytelling perspective. And then too, you know, Ray had a good idea of who she wanted to talk to or had already talked to. Um, and the legal documents, they're just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of testimony, exhibits, etc. And it became, you know, clear that there was just um, a, a very rich archive, so to speak, um, to draw from. And that was also, I think, a really important element in deciding to assign it. And with, with stories of the atavistian nature, there's always uh, the question of entry points and how to, how to get into the get into the story. So with this one, what was the kind of dialogue that you were having with Ray about getting into this to get us get us hooked and get us reading? Yeah, well, I, th- I think we we both felt, um, and I should say Jonah definitely um, assisted on this story because it was something that had been assigned and was sort of in the editing process um, while I was on sabbatical. So, um, you know, he was very much part of this conversation too. But I think that having a, a, a single patient who could be our entry point through whose experience we could see the way that this doctor operated and exploited his power uh, and, you know, really physically and emotionally uh, harmed his patients. And so uh, we wanted it to feel like we were going through 
this experience with a single person. And then what was great about Deborah, as we call her in the story, not only did this thing happen to her, but then she individually, unaware that she was just one of hundreds of patients who had been victimized, took it upon herself to try to hold him accountable. Um, And there was something really moving about this person thinking that she's alone in this. And then by the end of the first section, you know, we're able to flick at the fact that she's in no way alone and that, you know, she had embarked on this crusade that, you know, the legal system, the medical system um, was set up to essentially (laughs) um, have her fail at. um, And then there ultimately became power in numbers. Uh, And so we thought that, you know, using her as something of a, a prism, through which you suddenly, you know, then can see um, just how expansive um, and multifaceted the story is going to be. And then she also has a nice, you know, from a storytelling standpoint, there was, she, she came to play an important role in the investigation into the doctor. And then by the end of the story, you know, she um, is in a position now where, you know, she's kind of, it's it's changed her life in a lot of different ways um, and interesting ways. And so, uh, so she felt like a really um, rich character to, to use sort of as our backbone in the piece. Yeah. And, and some uh, figures in this piece uh, use their real name and then sometimes their pseudonyms. And uh, what's the dialogue that you're having when you're like, okay, it, it, in this instance, it's uh, it's okay to use uh, a pseudonym, and uh, but also you are always in the back of your mind is like you don't want to lean on that too much, uh, and maybe you can speak to that because maybe people don't understand why we need like real names attributed to things most of the time, if not all the time. Yeah, well, I mean, we do not use pseudonyms lightly. Um, by by any means, um, you know, we think it's important for people, um, especially when a story involves, you know, accusations, case, you know, actual convictions in a legal sense. You know, people having having a name attached to a source is is vital to sort of the the fairness of the piece, um, not you know allowing people to be able to to hide behind something. But these sources in this story are um, the ones for whom we use pseudonyms are people who were victimized in very, very intimate ways. Um, The doctor in question is an OBGYN and uh, what he did to them, you know, in some cases, like took their reproductive systems without telling them, like put them under anesthesia and took organs that they had not consented to have taken, you know, very much, uh, you know, affected their sexual lives um, their reproductive lives. And, you know, there's just a very clear degree of vulnerability for these sources. And we felt like it was important that they, if they did not feel comfortable with their names being attached, um, we could verify, you know, everything they were telling us via court testimony and other reporting. Um, we felt like it was important that they feel comfortable telling their stories and then not feel exposed in in that process. And I should say that for the most part, um, I, I may be wrong, I, I don't think every single woman who testified in court um, did so under only her initials. Um, but I think, I think like 99% of them did or something. So this is just a way roundabout way of saying that the uh, legal system also protected their identities. And so that was something that, you know, the legal system did it we felt fine, you know, respecting what what these what these women wanted. And I think, you know, more than anything, when I'm thinking about pseudonyms, etc., 
um, you know, we don't want to be in a position to do harm to people who have already had harm done to them or for whom harm is a real risk. And so, you know, we really want to come from a place of, you know, absolutely telling a story fairly and ethically, but also with compassion. So that is, uh, that is a hugely important part of what we do and when it comes to pseudonyms especially. And I will say we have an interesting story coming up. I don't want to give anything away where a pseudonym is kind of a funny <laughs> um, a funny aspect <laughs> of the story, um, but that's a couple months uh, in the future. Um, and it it's played a very different way in the story. I'll put it that way. <laughs> when you see that trust exploited, and especially in a case of, of this nature, where some of the, you know, the women at the center of it, it harkened back to, uh, cases of the the original like father of OBGYN and stuff and Henrietta Lacks and this invasive stuff that is just truly poisoning and damaging to the to the body to the extent that they can no longer in some cases you know uh, have a family or stuff like that it's just mm-hmm. it is uh, it this this idea that we put so much trust in people in the white jacket who might not actually have our best needs and in this case is these women's needs at heart yeah i mean it was definitely i i think you know one thing i should also say about why this story grabbed me is you know i am a person who has a uterus and mm-hmm. um you know uh OBGYNs are a feature of my life because you know since i have basically you know been um uh i don't know i think i saw one for the first time when i was like 17 or something Um, And the incredible authority that these people have over their patients um, because, and there's a a passage in the story where um, this is described, you know, anybody who's ever been to a gynecologist knows that a first appointment with somebody can be incredibly harrowing um, because you are asked to, you know, it's, it's not, you go to your GP or to a new GP and they're going to, you know, do you smoke? Do you drink? Like, I'm going to look inside your mouth and your ears and I'm going to take your vitals. And with a gynecologist, it's like, are you sexually active? Like, who do you have sex with? Have you ever had a sexually transmitted disease? Please take off your clothes so I can stick a scope inside of you. Mm. Like, it is the most invasive of commonplace experiences, I guess, because it's, you know, we're supposed to do this at least once a year (laughs) um, for our health. And I think there's a degree to which, you know, you not only have to trust your your providers but have been told to trust your providers you know they they know best this is you know your body is complicated your reproductive system is complicated these people have gone to school they've been doing this forever um and so if they recommend something you you should do it right uh and i think that one of the most heartbreaking aspects of this story um is witnessing and this you know this is something i really empathized with witnessing the you know patient after patient after patient be told by this doctor you know if you don't do this you will get cancer um if you don't do this you won't be able to have children or you know any any number of things that just feels so I mean, it has such incredible gravity from uh you know what is your life going to be like perspective and when a person in a white coat who has examined you or, you know, looked at your scans or whatever it is, says, this is what you need in order to survive, be able to have children, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they, they say yes, um, over and over and over. Um, and he is exploiting that trust, um, and exploiting that, you know, sort of 
sociocultural authority that he um, is given. It's, It's really just heartbreaking. And I think that you know, if you're a reader of this story or or telling, you know, somebody about this story, I think, you know, one of the big takeaways is, you know, it's, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask a doctor, okay, but can you, you know, walk me through exactly what that procedure will entail? Can you, um, you know, do I have other options? I'm getting a second opinion if it's a really drastic, you know, diagnosis or suggestion or whatever. Yeah, you know, I would never say I don't want to tell people to do their own research. (laughs) Um, Because that can lead you down like the dark, doom filled pathways of WebMD. Uh, But definitely, you know, being your own advocate um, is so, so, so important. And I think women, especially, um, and particularly, you know, women of color, which I am not, but, you know, women of color, there's a long, long history of their bodies being marginalized and exploited, um, particularly in the reproductive health space. So it's okay to be your own advocate. It's okay to say, well, wait a minute, I have a question about that. Um, or, you know, getting a second opinion. Yeah, it was definitely, um, enraging to read about, the ways that he preyed on, uh, again, these women's vulnerabilities, you know, he he targeted, it seems, uh, you know, vast majority of his patients were on Medicaid. So, you know, people from poorer backgrounds, um, a lot of women of color, you know, just really preyed on who they were, what their vulnerabilities were. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's enraging, just truly made me want to throw my computer across the room a few times. <laughs> <laughs> well, very nice. Well, we'll say it always, always a pleasure to get your side of the table on the, on these stories. And it's great to have you back on the pod to talk about these kind of things. So, uh, you know, we'll kick it over to Ray now and then just, uh, you know, thanks for the time and happy new year. Yeah. Happy new year to you. All right. That was nice. Good to hear from Sayward again, Ray Knudsen is here to talk about this piece as well as that feeling of mourning that comes when the piece you had in your head and uh, will never come to fruition and you just have to surrender to what you've got. Uh, earning trust from sources, uh, using pseudonyms, and the dreaded uh, pint of ice cream moment. Also, stay tuned for a parting shot, man, about that m- aforementioned mourning for what you hoped your book would be and then having to roll with what you've got when you're not happy with what you've got okay for starters here i asked ray how she arrived at this story cnfers so strap in so i've been reporting more on women's health care lately in my freelancing and i was kind of looking for something that i could sink my teeth into a little bit and just kind of go more in depth Um, So I kind of just poked around and went down several like Google, you know, rabbit holes and and found this story among other malpractice cases, among other doctors and and medical issues. But this one really stuck out to me in particular um, because of how horrifying it is and how um, there were some stories about it and there was some national coverage about it, but nothing I had seen that was really particularly in depth and when you consider all the like true crime and and bad doctor kind of stories out there that surprised me a little bit I I, yeah I just looked further into it and I saw that you know I had a court trial and testimony which was helpful um you know in in material and and having enough to work with um so I just looked into it and kind of ran with it for people who 
might not know the the cost of maybe finding either police reports or court transcripts of that nature like how much does that cost for for you the reporter to find that stuff um it costs a lot of time mm -hmm. um and, and 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 money so pay i used pacer because it's a federal court case um so they have like a in an amount that you can get for free each month um, of a certain amount of pages, but this was like thousands and thousands of pages. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely like several hundred dollars, which of course at first I paid for as I was reading them. And I think I did like a little bit at a time when I could um, so that I could try to get, you know, under the limit when I was able mm -hmm. to. Um, and then I was for this story reimbursed, which is not, that's pretty lucky in freelancing these days, I think, to be able to get your expenses reimbursed. Um, so, yeah, so it's definitely can cost, um, you know, a couple hundred dollars if depending on the amount of documents. Um, other courts are easier and more cooperative um, to get stuff from. So it can definitely cost like your time and sanity, too, um, depending on what you're trying to find. Now, a moment ago, you said something you were, you know, looking for something to kind of sink your teeth into and you know and for you based on what you had been reading out there and based on your own personal taste what what uh what's the nature of of depth and what is that what does that mean to you you know when you find something that you can sink your teeth into and to kind of blow up yeah i think that what has been really important to me in my healthcare reporting particularly is to take women's pain seriously, um, physically and emotionally. And I think that this story in particular, like maybe I might be going on a tangent here, but maybe some of the reasons it was overlooked was because it's an OBGYN because it's like gynecological issues and people don't want to talk about it. They don't take it seriously. People don't want to look at it, I guess, I think kind of in the, you know, general culture. Um, so it's important to me to be able to, to look at that and kind of show historical context of why that's the case of why gynecology in particular is open to these kinds of crimes and this kind of, um, mistreatment of patients and, and to show how we got here and why people get away with it and why these patients are more susceptible to, to harm in certain cases. And, and so that's kind of what I was looking for of like, what are we looking at today at a thing happening today? And where did it come from? Why is it like this? And then kind of how does that match with my like historical understanding of the medical, you know, industry as it is today? And so much of the story is about, uh, you know, a doctor taking advantage of, of these patients and performing procedures on them uh, that they didn't consent to hysterectomies, among among other among other uh, ectomies, if you if you will, uh, in their reproductive yeah. systems, and and it's such a delicate and sensitive topic. And um, so, for you, when you were trying to find people, you know, vectors to tell the story, like how did you you know find find people willing to talk and then engender a certain amount of trust to you know to tell those stories? It was really hard. Um, it was really hard. A lot of people didn't want to talk about it. A lot of people didn't want to talk about it at all. A lot of people didn't want their names attached to it. That's why we use anonymous sources because the people that were willing to talk didn't necessarily want their faces, you know, and names to be associated with this forever. 
it was really difficult. And I've reported on, you know, sensitive things before, and I've talked about people's gynecological issues before and giving birth before and things they've had trouble with before. And, and this was the hardest it was for me to, to find people that were willing to talk to me. And so I think it was just explaining where I was coming from and that, um, you know, I wanted to take them seriously and I wanted to listen and they didn't have to share anything that they weren't comfortable with. And they could use, you know, a pseudonym if they wanted to and just persistence and, and kind of explaining who I was. And, and, you know, I, I was working on this story when I gave birth to my second child. And so I think kind of coming from it, from that angle too, of, you know, I have two kids and I've been through some, you know, big medical things. And I understand how important that is and how scary that is and how vulnerable you can be. So I just kind of tried to approach it that way. And it was really hard finding, finding people period. There's obviously this doctor had a lot of victims. He was, he was a doctor for almost 40 years in this area. And so people, a lot of people were affected. And I think right after it happened, um, people were kind of spoken out about how shocked they were. And and there were kind of people that spoke to the press then, um, but finding people to revisit that and kind of dive back into that trauma and that pain um, was really difficult. And one of our our main sources in the story um, didn't respond to me for months. I mean, months and months and months didn't respond to me. And I I called her for what I thought was going to be the last time just to leave her a message and be like, okay, I'm just going to tell her like when the story's coming out and you know what I hope to say. And I'll just leave a message. Like she's not going to answer. And she picked up and we talked for an hour and we kept talking. And that was like, she had told me, she said she, you know, had turned down other reporters and, and turned down other people, but she, she appreciated, you know, where I was coming from and what I was saying. And and so she agreed to talk to me. So yeah, it was really, really difficult. And I think just trying to be honest and upfront with people and then kind of let them be in control of their story and what they want to say um, helped. But for some people, I don't, I don't know why they decided to talk. It was really difficult. And then other people wanted to talk but we're in the middle of their own court cases. And so we're advised not to speak by their attorneys, which I understand. And it's a shame for me as a journalist, but like they can't do anything that would, you know, hurt their case. So I get, I get that too. Right. Yeah. And the, you get a sense that for, for people going into, you know, whatever, whether it's your general practitioner or OBGYN, you know, if they've got the white coat on, there is just inherent trust involved. And I think it's especially true yeah. with an OBGYN because it is such an, uh, a private and in, invasive, you know, examination for, for women to, 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 to go through just for yeah. routine checkups and everything. And so the fact that there was someone of this nature taking advantage of so many people and it's particularly women of color, it just really, uh, yeah. It, you know, it really calls into question who 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 women can can trust out there, and the, and the white coat is not an impenetrable yeah. shield. No, absolutely, and I think that's part of what makes it so devastating is that it's this person that people are in general taught to trust. This doctor, you go there for medical advice, and especially in OBGYN, it's like you trust them with your body that you don't show other people it's not you know it's like they're looking at vaginas at breasts at your naked body and it's like it's very vulnerable and 
your children, like people trust these doctors to give birth to their children. And, and that's itself a life-threatening thing. And so I just, yeah, it's very intimate and very important. And, and a lot of why I think gynecology kind of, I don't know why, why patients, I guess, are maybe more vulnerable in that situation is because those kinds of appointments and details aren't always talked about openly. Like if you talk about going to like, I, for example, my, my kids, I was talking about, I had two kids, um, my two-year-old, when we prep her going to the doctor, we're like, here's what's going to happen. They're going to take your temperature. You know, they're going to check your eyes and your nose and your throat. And so everyone knows that experience when they go to the doctor. Right. But like, if you, people don't really talk about what happens at a gynecologist openly. Um, so people don't, share that information always and and so people when it goes wrong or when it goes how it's not supposed to people might not be as aware of that and they also might not know what's worth questioning when to push back and how to get clarity if you know if that dialogue isn't open yeah yeah and i agree and i i very firmly believe that people shouldn't have to be their own doctors <laughs> like i should not have to know you know the the doctor medical name of every single surgery of like what they call it when you take out a certain organ like right like i should be able to trust my doctor when he says this is what i'm doing in plain terms and so i don't think people should have to know how to read you know, an ultrasound or an x-ray or like know what their symptoms are supposed to mean. That's why you go to the doctor. You're supposed to be able to trust a person who is credentialed, who has their license, who's operating at places that have supposedly checked them out. And there's reasons for that, right? It's, you can't operate on yourself. You don't know what's wrong with yourself. And so, yeah, I just don't think, I don't think it's anyone's fault. Like if a patient goes somewhere and a doctor says, Hey, this is what's wrong with you. And it kind of makes sense based on your, you know, general, you know, layman's knowledge of, of what's going on. Then like, yeah, why, why would you question that? Why would you take that to somebody else when nothing seemed wrong in the first place? You know, I just don't think that these, I don't think his patients were stupid. I don't think they did anything wrong. I just think he took advantage of a lot of holes in the system. Yeah. And because, you know, I I know just from, you know, my wife's experience of just getting an appointment with a credible gynecologist is like sometimes like they're booking six or seven months in advance. And it's like, okay, in that time, there might be some something that crops up. And the sooner you nip these things in the bud, the quicker you might be able to get treatment that can lead to (laughs) not dying. And, uh, and, but yeah. And so this guy at the center of your story uh, was able to get people in and out and he really churned it out. So that was in, in and of itself is very attractive to people who want to get, (laughs) get the right care. Yeah. And that's what I think is so nefarious about this is that all the things he did, you could spin as a doctor taking good care of his patients. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's like why part of why he was able to get away with this for so long. He got people in when they needed to get in. If they didn't have transportation, if they couldn't get time off work and they only had today, he could get you in. He was fast. He respected supposedly respected your time. Um, You know, he looked like he was listening to people because he 
they thought he was taking their pain seriously, was taking, you know, their concerns seriously. He was looking into things when other doctors ignored them or wouldn't schedule surgeries or wouldn't tie their tubes or, or, you know, do what they needed done, he would do it. And so that's, what's like so icky about it is like, I mean, a lot of things are terrible about it, but he came across as this like caring doctor that took care of things and took care of his patients and looked into it and did the procedures and got that got it taken care of quickly. And all of that made people feel taken care of. But all of that was, if you, if you look at it from the other point of view, that's, that was taking advantage of everybody. Those were all the same ways that he got away with what he was doing. Yeah. That's part of the con of it all. Cause it, the fact that if yeah. a doctor would go to those lengths, you'd be like, wow, he, yeah, he really does have my best interest at heart. But that was just part of the, the long game to just get more widgets into the factory that he could churn out, you know, at, at at the right. at his clinic and then certainly at the hospitals where he would perform many of his procedures it uh yeah it just it throws mm-hmm. into question just uh it, it makes you wonder who you can trust right and i think that these patients that i spoke with they how do they go to another doctor again mm-hmm. like their trust in any medical system and any legal system is just broken and they don't trust anyone like how would you like they I talked to a patient who went to an ultrasound after um you know after his trial and after everything went down and uh, the ultrasound tech asked if she had an ovary removed and she thought oh my god did I like I don't know like she didn't know if she still had all of her organs because this was her doctor and he performed so many procedures on her and like I just like can't imagine not being sure of like what's in your body and what happened to you. And like, yeah, going to somebody after that, like I just, you still have to go to doctors, right? Like you're still a person. You might need something. You might need help with something or need something done. It's not like you can avoid them forever. And, and yeah, trying to, to go to someone and and have any trust. It's just irreparably, irreparably broken for, for some of these women. And the, the piece too, it has um, obviously those undertones of a lot of the racist science that was performed on, you know, just yeah. uh, un, untold, just just so so sad of what and tragic what was happened to a lot of enslaved black women to, you know, and, and then just fast forwarding to even, you know, Henrietta Lacks and everything that's gone on there. So, you know, when you were stumbling upon that, like just how illuminating was was that stuff to just to come across? And, you know, what did that say about you know, this and how did that inform your piece? Yeah, it definitely informed it. I think I, I tried to report it um, coming from that context of this branch of medicine is built on the bodies of enslaved black women. Doctors in this field of medicine in particular made their name and made money and crafted procedures by violating these women, by performing experimental surgeries on these women. When birth control was developed, there were, you know, medical trials on women in insane asylums who did not consent. And so I think that it's just you can find so many instances, especially in gynecology throughout history in the United States, where women's bodies were seen as incidental to the medical progress to be made or as incidental to the doctor making money or making his name or getting famous for a certain type of surgery. And I think I tried to approach reporting the story in that way of, of understanding that everything that kind of goes on in gynecology today has that history. And that's still 
very much present in in the kind of doctoring that happens today. Even with good doctors, it's like the system is set up to take advantage of people. The people that are protected are not necessarily the patients. Um, and I, I just think that that comes from a, a long context and long history of women and patients being taken advantage of in, in particular. And as action was starting to be taken, um, this 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 um this notion of, of like sovereign immunity come comes into play and maybe explain mm-hmm. what that is and how that uh, comes to play in this story yeah so sovereign immunity is is basically a legal i don't know loophole i guess where you can't sue the state without the state's permission um so it's been in the united states legal system like since it began. It's kind of a thing. I think that came from England. They like borrowed it from England's legal system when they were setting up the United States legal system. And so if an entity like a hospital is set up as a public entity, that's like government backed, um, like Chesapeake regional is a hospital that has a governing board that is appointed by city council. And it was established as a nonprofit hospital by the city. And so it is a, state city run you know government entity technically and so you can't sue the hospital it falls under this sovereign immunity where um because it's this municipal entity um people can't really sue the hospital and one of the patients tried and a lot of patients tried actually i think several patients named the hospital in their suits and every single time it got taken off the suit. Um, if one reason didn't work, then the legal team would try another reason. And what ended up working and getting the hospital removed from the suit was sovereign immunity, was saying that like, oh, actually, like you can't even sue this entity at all. Um, so people would try to hold the hospital accountable and try to, you know, include it in malpractice suits or say, you know, that they were partially responsible and that they, you know, should be held accountable and provide compensation. And, and they were just kind of left out of it because of the sovereign immunity. And, and a private hospital does not fall under that umbrella. And, and just like a, you know, a private store or company is, is partially responsible for the actions of its employees as they carry out day-to-day um, you know, their job duties. If, if an employee is carrying out their job duties and does harm, that company is partially responsible, but in a sovereign immunity case, they're not. Yeah. It's, it's so, you know, thorny that, you know, they, you know, they, they clearly yeah. where wrong has been done and they're just still trying, there are ways to kind of weasel out of it. It's just an even greater injustice in some, not, not greater injustice, but every bit of an injustice where it's just like, ah, sorry this happened to you, but you know, we're, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. And it's wild because it's like a person can't just walk into a hospital and perform a surgery, right? Like that would be illegal. That's assault. Like that's not a thing that can happen. So like they have to credential the doctor, the doctor signs papers or or gets checked out or does whatever they need to do to be able to work there. And so people there's, I don't know of a good equivalency, but you know, it's like they, they give permission basically for this doctor to perform there and to do operations but the hospital claims that they're you know not responsible for this doctor's actions even though they 
checked the doctor out and said it was okay for you to operate here. So it's just this very, it's just this legal mess that this hospital is taking advantage of to not accept or take any responsibility for the things that happened in its operating rooms. And it just kills me. It kills me because the hospital made money from Dr. Perway's operating at the hospitals. Like they got to charge insurance companies for the patients that stayed there for the operations that happened. And so they made money from it and they're expanding. Like the hospitals are expanding, they're growing, they're adding new beds, they're adding new machinery, they're doing new things because of money they've made over the past, you know, however many years. And part of that money came from women's organs being stolen from from procedures that were done without their consent. And it's just like, how do you square that? How do you how do you take that money and do something with it and and know that it came on the back of these women and patients that you were supposed to protect, that you were supposed to help? And I just like it just kills me. And I can't um it kills a lot of people. A lot of the patients that I spoke with feel very betrayed about it and feel like the hospital is just as big of a story as the doctor. Mm. Yeah, and this is by no means an equal comparison, but it's kind of like uh, an an athlete who has like I don't know, is is a bit of a let's just say a handful, but he's he's really good, and so the team mm-hmm. will be like, you know, we're just gonna kind of yeah. turn a blind eye. You know, he's the better you are, the more they're like they'll put up with your bullshit, and it, yeah. it's kind of like he was able to perform so many procedures uh, that like you said, basically made this hospital, you know, probably millions of dollars that they're able to just put more beds, get more patients in there for whatever procedures are going to happen. They're going to keep growing and growing and growing. And so this is like a Mm -hmm. built on a very, just almost an evil foundation. And that doesn't square. Yeah. And I think that's true about the entire healthcare system, right? It's, you know, in many ways a for-profit, and this is technically a not-for-profit hospital, but it has to make money to do, you know, that doesn't mean that it doesn't make money. That means that it just doesn't go to certain places, that money. Um, So yeah, it's our, our whole healthcare system is set up in a way that it has to be making money. And so that, again, creates the opportunity for these things to happen for someone who is making money to get away with terrible things because the hospital needs money to be able to continue being a hospital. And something I like to talk about also is kind of like, you know, as we get into the the writing of the piece is when you're thinking about structure and maybe even entry points to, of a, of a story of this nature. And, you know, you dive in with, with uh, Deborah and her, her, her experience here. And uh, so there's just, just in terms of constructing the story and sitting down to write this thing, you know, just uh, how did that set itself up to be the entry point for this? Yeah. I mean, Deborah's story was always one that we hoped to start the piece with, but she is the source that didn't respond to me for a really long time. And so I didn't, we just weren't sure what we would feel comfortable. And so she filed a lawsuit herself, um, in federal court, which I was able to get a hold of the documents from that lawsuit. So I knew a lot of what happened in her story before I spoke with her. Um, and then I saw also that she testified in the Perways trial. And so I had a lot of what happened to her and was super interested in her story because it's so compelling. I mean, she 
you know, tried to sue this doctor all by herself when a lawyer wouldn't take her malpractice case. And so her, you know, tenacity and, and the way she approaches things was always really admirable to me and really it was it was a good story and she was someone I felt like I could really relate to of you know she she tried to be on top of things and on top of her health and and she got you know a bad test result and was trying to take care of it and do the right thing and she just got taken advantage of and and ended up in a really horrible situation and so her story was always very um dramatic and very you know, interesting. And, and we were, we were really hoping to start out with that. But like I said, I didn't get in, in touch with her for, for many months while reporting the story. And so we weren't sure if we wanted to lead off with this kind of story without talking to the person and, you know, making sure that they were okay with it. And we weren't sure if we were going to use her name or not and, and things like that. And so we tried to do it mostly chronologically um, is kind of how we at least started the structure um, and then with the hope that we could lead with Deborah's story and get in touch with her. And luckily, we did get in touch with her and she was okay with us using her story and she was able to talk to us and she was amazing to talk to. And, and like I said, I just really admire her, the way she views things and, and her tenacity and, and the way she tries to look out for other people. And um, it was really in honor to speak with her and to speak with everyone that I spoke with. But yeah, so we, we really wanted to start with her and we kind of tried to set things up chronologically and then kind of take it from there. Um, but there was a question of, of whether we would start with her or not, or whether, um, you know, if I needed to go deeper into another patient's story that I had spoken with and, and maybe we should start with that. And so it kind of, I think at one point, Deborah's story was not the lead but then after we got a hold of her and, and got it worked out, we put it back at the top. So um, that's kind of where we started and then kind of hope to take it chronologically from there, even though we kind of go back and forth a little bit in, in the structure. It's mostly things were going well until they weren't. And then things fall apart pretty spectacularly. All right. At what point in the research and the reporting do you start to feel confident that you can then begin the writing? Oh, boy. I was not very confident. <laughs> about, I mean, I struggled with this a lot. Like I said, it was, it was really hard for me to get people on the record. Um, so I ended up going to Virginia um, several months into my reporting so that I could talk to people face to face. And that is when, after that is when I, I felt like I could start writing because I, I talked to several of the patients. Um, we sat down for a long time and we spoke and I felt like I had it after that. So, so after I, I went to Virginia, I saw, you know, where things were happening in the hospitals, the doctor's offices. I talked with the patients face to face that, that is a point where I, where I started writing. And I still had a lot to do after that. I still hadn't made contact um, with Deborah, and I still had, you know, follow up calls and, and stuff like that. But, but, but yeah, that's the point where I, I started kind of outlining and started drafting just to see what I was missing and see how far I could get and see kind of what else I still needed to do. Do you get a sense that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of writers or journalists, it's just, um, there's never a moment when you're ready to write. You have to just kind of write before you feel like you're ready. And then you have to kind of figure it out there as you're laying down road. Oh yeah, definitely. I feel like that. I just feel like, um, I, I'm a person that has to just start and see 
where I get to. And, and that's not to say I don't outline or anything because I do, but I just need to start and then see what gaps there are and see what we need to fill in and see where we need it to go. Um, so yeah, I definitely feel like I had to start, I had to just start and I had to just go. And I also, um, have two small children. And so I don't have a lot of time to just sit down and start where I want to start. I have to just take the time that I have and just go do as much as I can in the pockets of time that I have. And so that kind of, um, forces my hand a little bit too. Yeah. Maybe ex- expand on that a little bit. Uh, you know, cause you, you know, if any popular, you know, creativity influencer out there, just like, you know, you got to, you know, carve out this amount of time to do your writing and blah, blah, blah. But for someone like yourself who mm-hmm. might have just agents of chaos running around and you're like, yeah. Ah, yeah. do I have a half hour today or two hours, 90 minutes or 20 minutes? I don't know. So how have you cultivated a sense of this is how I can get work done amidst unpredictability? Yeah, I don't know if there's like a real good sense of it or you just like are so panicked, you just go. (laughs) So I think when I had some time, I just was like, okay, I got to go. I got to get this done. Um, I did, you know, a little bit after bedtimes here and there. Um, My husband is incredibly supportive of, of what I was doing. And so he, we would schedule blocks of time for me to go work. Um, so it, it was like, you know, an hour here, two hours there, 30 minutes, um, stuff like that, where I really was able to, to get the job done. And then if something came up, then you just kind of have to run with it. And like, there isn't time to just sit and wonder what you're going to do. So if one thing isn't working, then I'm going to go to another section or I'm going to look at another thing I need to look at because, I can't just like sit down and do nothing when I have those pockets of time available. Mm. It's crazy. You know, some, sometimes when I talk to people who feel like uh, they, they don't have enough time to write, you know, whatever it might be, it be it an essay, you know, book or memoir, you know, whatever they're working on, there's, uh, there, there's this idea that you need like that, you know, that four or five hours of, 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 at a time to, to sink in. And sometimes they tell people, you know what, like if you got 10 minutes, just set that timer for 10 minutes and you'll be surprised what you can get done in 10 minutes. And it's kind of hearing what you say kind of echoes that it's just like, okay, I have this block of time. And I imagine that over, over the time that you've developed this, that you've probably been surprised with yourself, what you can get done when you're like, okay, I, I might have 20 minutes. Let's go. And you get quite a bit done. Yeah, absolutely. And I have also set timers, you know, of like, okay, I have 15 minutes, like, let's just get something done in that amount of time. And, and I think part of it is just working with what you've got. And so you need to just go as much as you can. And then part of it, like I said, is kind of sheer panic of like, oh, I have to get this done. And I have a lot of words to go, you know, and so, um, yeah, but I think that's just how you build something big, you have to just do it a little bit at a time. And, And when I was working on my book, um, I, I got up, you know, I had another job. I was, I'm, I'm got up early and would do a little bit at a time. And like people would talk about, yeah, like writing four or five hours or days at a time or weekends at a time. I write paragraphs at a time. Mm-hmm. Like I write sentences at a time because I just don't have necessarily the time that's going to lead to, to pages and pages. And plus I don't have like the mental capacity to just sit and write for five hours at yeah. a time. Um, Maybe people do, but I just don't, I just, I just don't think I can do that necessarily and still get something worthwhile at the end of it. You know, like at a certain point, my brain is fried anyway, and I need to take a break. So that's just for me 
sometimes how it shakes out anyway. I kind of wonder sometimes, like, what would it have been like if I had days and weekends and, and hours and hours to sit un- uninterrupted to do that? And, like, I don't, I don't know. But I also think that sometimes you just have to call it done because – I could, I could still be working on this, right? Like I, I see things that I, I want to get deeper into or do differently or, or you know, write better, <laughs> but I just don't, it just, sometimes it just has to be done. Yeah. There eventually, there comes a point I'm kind of, I'm starting to feel the crunch of this book deadline I'm on. And there's yeah. a, there's this moment where like you kind of have, over the course of the writing, the reporting, you have like the vision of what you hope the article or the book is going to be. And then the closer and closer you get to the deadline, you're like, eventually you have to just resign yourself to just the material you've got and what you're at the mercy of and just surrender to that and do the best you can. And I'm right in that moment where I'm having to kind of resign myself to that surrender. And is that something you've experienced? Oh, absolutely. And I think that because I know the women who couldn't talk to me, because I know some of the stories that I'm missing or I couldn't get to or the sources that wouldn't agree to speak with me, it like I know several other ways this story could have looked. I know several other stories that I'm missing that I wish I could have included. And so that is really hard. Like it could have gone a lot of different ways. And I I'm bummed about that. Like I'm bummed that these people couldn't get on the record with me. I'm bummed that I couldn't talk to people I wanted to talk with. And so I know what's missing. Um, But I don't, I mean, hopefully the story in its final version doesn't feel like anything's missing. Um, But yeah, for sure. I like know the things that could have been included and I, that I couldn't get. And, and, but yeah, it's like as a journalist, you don't get the best story that, exists from what happened you get the best story from what people will say to you right and so that's like you said like you have the material you have you have the people that will talk to you and you just have to do what you can with that yeah and it's and i guess if it's done right the reader won't know any different and it's gonna be like oh this is fine but like deep down you know like man there were 50 more people i wish i could have spoken to for this i just didn't have the time or no one returned my calls and then you're kind of left with this ache of what might have been and yeah. that's that's truly what I'm wrestling with at the moment I got to get my head I got to I got to get out of that headspace but right now it's just like I'm mourning for the people that I haven't been able to reach yet even though I still might be able to get them I'm like I, it's just kind of eating me up like this isn't going to be what I thought it was going to be and that's it's killing me <laughs> Oh yeah I had like some very like like gonna eat a pint of ice cream like to lay on the floor kind of days because it was like I was like so close to like getting some interviews that I really wanted and that I thought would like make a really good story and and these people like I said like some of them wanted to speak with me and so it felt so unfair of like they wanted to share their story of what happened to them I wanted to talk to them someone out there probably wants to read about it and there was this thing of this you know court case or these legal things going on where they couldn't speak or felt like they couldn't speak and I think that's probably true with a lot of people that work at the hospital too you know they just don't feel comfortable 
responding or they still work there and are afraid for their jobs or, or you know what have you and so yeah it just I just felt like I don't know if this is going to work out and no one will talk to me these people want to and they can't or they can't because of x y and z and so yeah I just felt really um unsure about what we were going to get um but I think yeah I don't know like I said the people I did talk to were amazing um were so forthcoming with something so vulnerable and I really feel honored to be able to speak with them about it and that they trusted me with something so vulnerable um and so so yeah I mean eventually I got to a point where I was I'm more at peace (laughs) with with what it looks like and what I'm missing but yeah there's definitely kind of a uh I know what this could have been um but also just as a with this doctor and with his patients and his stories there's so many people who are affected that you could write one of these stories for every single patient probably mm-hmm. because they're so affecting and there's so many lives were changed and so many horrific things were done. And so, yeah, it's like I, at some point you have to decide what to include. What would you identify as something, you know, your, your strengths in, in, in your craft, you know, be it the reporting, the research, or the writing, the rewriting, editing, and so forth. And, uh, you know, how do you maybe, like, try to, you know, double down on those instead of, <laughs> instead of a lot of us, we were like, I'm, I'm shitty at that, and I'm just going to focus on how crappy I am. <laughs> and, and at the, at the, <laughs> I yeah. definitely do some of that, too, yeah. <laughs> um, I, think, I think my strength is definitely in, in reporting and researching, um, I want to tell the clearest story, but I don't know that I'm like a writerly writer. Like I, I just don't know. I, other people I think are way better at wordsmithing than I am, for instance. Um, but I think that I can find, I can find people. I can talk to people. I can find documents. I can make connections. Um, and I think, I think I'm good at talking to people. Like I think I've, I've talked to people about some pretty vulnerable things and I tried to, you know, get some good details and try to listen to their story. And I think I'm good at listening. Um, so yeah, so I think I'm definitely stronger at, at reporting and researching than I am at crafting a beautiful sentence. I don't, I don't, you just, this story I think is so like you don't have to be a beautiful writer to tell this story. Right. It kind of tells itself. It's like the the things that happened are what's important. And so I think, you know, simplicity and clarity is what's important um, in this case for this kind of story. Oh, 100%. I, I, I think a lot of people, um, they might get into this thinking they can write their way out of, of a reporting problem. And the better mm-hmm. reporter and research you researcher you are the easier the writing is and the more you can just let the story do the heavy lifting all you're doing is you're kind of a a me uh, just a messenger for the story and just greasing those skids with all that great you know research and reporting that you did and then you don't have to try to light fireworks on the page there's a time and a place for that but you know in a story of this nature you know you don't want to get in the way of everyone who like you said earlier, that you were honored to tell their story. You don't want to get in the way of that. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, they're so harrowing and so emotional um, on their own. Yeah, it's like you don't need me to dress up what happened to Deborah. Like she did that. She did that on her own and, and, and what she went through. And, and what she said about herself is is 
way more interesting than what I could say about her. And so, yeah, it just, um, and, and I do feel like it took, it was so, I feel like it was so much, it was so much reporting and so much information to distill and to go through. Um, but that also meant that if we had a question or, or had, were wondering about something, I usually had the information available to, to, to answer that question or to fill in. Um, so, yeah. So I think because of that, it was um, helpful to um, in the, you know, in the editing process or, or if someone was like, well, what happened at this point? Um, it's not usually because I didn't know. It's because I maybe didn't, you know, word it clearly the first time around or something like that. Hmm. And what kind of systems have you put in place so you have good access to all the information you you know you've uh, you've curated so you can access that as you craft the piece yeah it's a process for sure so I use Scrivener to write and I have folders for a lot of different things so I have folders for like the sources that I talk to the interviews and the information about those women I have sources for like I mean folders for the like the locations the hospitals what happened there like their addresses information that i need on those um i have folders for the court testimony and i put like the pdfs you know of the testimony in there and then as i was reading through them i would kind of make my own index um of like here's on what page this person starts talking here's who they are here's like a couple key words of what they talk about um and so that was a way for me to be able to search through my own files to find what I needed and to be able to look at kind of like a, you know, an index or a table of contents almost of, of the court testimony itself, which I said is like thousands of pages. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a process. And I had a lot of, I had a timeline um, that I created in Excel and in the timeline, I would have, you know, the date, the thing that happened and the document that I found it from and the page number that it was on. Um, and that was something helpful for me so that I could go back to it and find it and also helpful for our fact checker, hopefully, um, so that I could share all my documents and the timeline and, you know, the index. And if we had a question about where did we get this information or can we clarify, you know, X, Y, and Z, I could look and say, oh, that's on day five of the testimony. Here's what page it's on. And here's the witness that was speaking. So that's what I did. And that's kind of, I mean, I guess it was a process that expanded as I started working on it. But one thing I wanted to be sure and do was have that timeline and, and, and be able, when I was reading and taking notes on, on the testimony, um, to make sure that I had like who was speaking and on what page they started and stuff like that. And when you're done with the piece and you, you know, submit it and it's, and it's by and large pretty, pretty well done, you know, what's the prevailing feeling that, that, that you experience at the completion of a, a piece of this nature? Oh, relief for sure. Mm -hmm. Relief. It just feels like a huge weight lifted. And even, um, I'm sure that's a, at the point I'm talking to you, it hasn't been published yet. So I feel like I'm sure there will be things that come with that and feelings, but um, every step we get closer feels like a little bit lighter of a little bit like, okay, 
that weight was taken off. Like, let's go to the next thing, you know? And so, yeah, the first time I turned in a draft, it just was like, like, you know, I've been working on it for months and months and it just felt like, okay, I can actually like relax this weekend. Like I don't have to be working right now. So that was good. It was definitely relief for sure. But I still, I mean, to be honest with you, I still haven't like closed all my computer tabs. Like I still have my Scrivener doc open. Like I'm, I haven't shut the door yet because I'm afraid something else will come up. (laughs) Yeah. Just that sense of panic. This living thing is just, it's never going to die. It's always going to be there. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, very nice, Ray. Well, I before I let you get going, is, is thing I love to ask uh, writers at the end of the show is uh, just a recommendation of some kind for for the listeners, and that can just be anything you're excited about. So I extend that to you. Uh, what might you recommend for the listeners out there? Um, yeah, I have a podcast recommendation. Actually, the Retrievals um, came out from Serial earlier this year, and it is about a fertility clinic. Um, where a person that worked at the clinic replaced fentanyl and pain medication with saline solution. So women were undergoing procedures without pain medication at this fertility clinic. And the podcast is just a really wonderfully done. And it's another thing that takes women's pain seriously. And it kind of shows the cracks and the holes in the system that allowed these things to happen. And it shows how, again, women aren't necessarily taken seriously when they talk about their pain and and the real repercussions that that has. Um, So yeah, the Retrievals podcast was a really tough listen, but really, um, really wonderful. Fantastic. Well, well, Ray, uh, just this piece is an incredible piece of journalism. And um, yeah, it was a a treat to read as, as hard as it was as a the subject matter it was it was a truly uh, a, a gripping read and um yeah i hope this shines a shines a light and, and it definitely does justice to the the people who uh entrusted you with their story so thanks for the work and thanks for coming on the show thank you that means a lot thank you so much for having me hey thanks thanks for listening cnfers thanks for another fine year of cnf pod thanks to sayward for keeping this Atavistian train going. Thanks to Jonah as well. And uh, for this particular episode, thanks to Ray for making the time and talking some job. It being the final episode of 2023, I know many of you are likely looking to the new year with new goals, you know, be it for your writing or maybe your body or your mind. Or maybe you're like... I'm not getting on that resolution treadmill at all. I'm sick of it. And I'm just gonna call it a win to merely get out of bed in the morning. I have one goal. It's not really a resolution. Uh, and, and it's to just be sure I hit this uh, this deadline. Uh, which is accelerating at me. I'm at the event horizon. And by the by the time you hear this parting shot, I will have crossed into the 80,000 words territory. None read, by the way. Uh, None of it divided into chapters. I have no idea what I'm doing. I I still have a ton of research and interviews to conduct. I still have to clean up transcripts because Otter, the transcribing service, is terrible. And you have to comb through it all. You have to. And there, it is illegible. It'll come up with these words and be like, that's... That's not right. That's not even close. 
Okay, but after all that throat clearing, this is my point. Uh, I'm reaching the phase where I have to just resign myself to the book that's in front of me and not the book I, I want to write anymore. Uh, you know, I'll never track down certain people. And, you know, after a dozen voicemails, they're not going to call me back. You know, sure, there's likely a hundred articles and random newspaper archives I have no idea exist that will lay untouched by me because I couldn't travel to them or access them or, like I said, didn't even know they were there on account of maybe not having quite enough time. Or maybe I did have enough time and I wasted it. You know, it's mourning the book that might have been for the book you have to complete. So, no, I don't feel good about what I've done and what will hopefully come out if my contract isn't voided. Did I not hustle enough? Did I not ask good enough probing, deep, non-superficial questions? Did I cheap out by not physically traveling to places, though I couldn't because of certain home circumstances? There's just no way I could leave. Uh, did I waste too much time on newspapers.com or sportsillustrated.com? Uh, you know, doing research, not just reading random stuff. Uh, did I start writing too late? There was a point where I worried whether or not I'd reach 85,000 words, which is the low end of the contractually obligated word count. You know, finding relatively new material. Uh, now my worry is that I'm going to have, like, is there going to be enough time for me to just write through my timeline? Yeah, this this draft might be, I mean, it feels like it's on pace to be 120,000 words long. I hope for everyone's sake that's not true. You know, with a little more than three months to go, we're likely looking at more writing and rewriting. And if I'm lucky enough, maybe I'll land a few new phone calls here and there that I can pepper out throughout. This got to follow up with certain people, too, to flesh out other details. You know, then, then so be it. It's just about that time where you just have to surrender to what you've got. And I'm grossly unsatisfied with what I've got, which is a bummer. It's sad for the story. And it's sad for my future writing books. I mean, if this doesn't pan out, like, uh, it's bartending time. That's about all I'm qualified to do. Anyway, 2024 is here. I dread it. I wish it wasn't coming. But for the person who is so scared of not finishing almost to the point of paralysis, I can feel good about this. It's a fucking leap year, man. One extra day. Happy New Year, CNFers. If you can't do, interview. See ya. See ya.